This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at The Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at The Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. So I don't want a single word written about that case. Do you understand? There is some question about whether it was an inside job. I would say he's ruthless. It can become deadly given certain circumstances. Welcome back to Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders. I'm your host, Karen Smith. This is Episode 7. This podcast may contain graphic language and is not suitable for children. Previously on the Car Barn Murders. A trip to Philadelphia in pursuit of Tony the Stinger Cugino and his mob had been a bust. Interviews with Kensington natives Arthur Waugh, his brothers, and Uncle Luke Johnson failed to net anything worthwhile 
other than some rambling answers about who was staying where the night of the murders. Another interview with a man who claimed his name was Harry Simon proved that Simon was a D.C. racket insider with ties to Philadelphia and New York, but his answers failed to give any direct links to the murders, and his alibi about being in Baltimore at the time checked out. The Carbarn case was put on the back burner for several months, until January 20th, 1936, nearly a year to the day since the murders, when Detective Theodore Volton got a note on his desk regarding an inmate of the D.C. jail named Horace Davis. Davis had already contacted the U.S. Attorney, the Department of Justice, and the Superintendent of the D.C. Penal Institutions about his intel, and they all believed his story held water. Horace Davis claimed to have inside information about the Carbarn case, information he was willing to provide in exchange for a transfer from the D.C. jail to another location to serve out his sentence. He claimed that once the newspapers got a hold of his story that his life would be in danger because he would be labeled a stool pigeon, a rat. Detective Volton interviewed him and got all the details. Horace Davis provided a handwritten statement during that visit with Volton and said an old friend of his named Walter Oliver had picked him up on a corner in downtown D.C. Both he and Walter Oliver were out on parole back in August 1935 when they met up, and apparently Davis had gotten himself tossed back in jail in the months since. During their conversation, Walter Oliver confessed to being involved in the Carbarn murders. Rather than parsing down the details, I'll let Horace Davis's own words tell the story. This is what he wrote. My full name is Horace E. Davis. I'm 28 years old, and I lived at 2115 First Street Northwest. I make this statement of my own free will and have been made no threats, promises, or inducements of any kind. On or about the 19th of August, 1935, I was standing at 10th and E Streets Northwest when a man in a hup coupe drove up and said, I'll take you home. I knew this man. His name is Walter Oliver, and he lives at Capitol Heights, Maryland. He and I had been drinking, and he had enough to make him talkative. When we got to First and Rhode Island Avenue, we stopped, and I said, let's go buy a beer. He said he'd been drinking gin, and he was afraid it would make him sick. We talked a while, and I asked him what he was doing, and he said, nothing, since I pulled the car barn job. And I said, did you do that? And he answered, hell yes. Then I asked him, why did you kill both men? And Oliver said, I couldn't get any more for killing a hundred as I could for killing one. Then I got out of his coupe, and Oliver rode out Rhode Island Avenue toward Mount Rainier. I knew Walter Oliver in the Maryland Training School for Boys, as he and I did a stretch together there in the early 20s. When I first read Horace Davis's statement, my first thought was that Walter Oliver was just a blowhard, trying to get some street cred with his blatant admission to another criminal then I remembered the case of Roy Andrews that I detailed in season one, where Roy Andrews' stepson, Robert Peterson, did the same thing on a wiretapped confession to his drug dealer. Was Horace Davis telling the truth? And did Walter Oliver really admit to being involved in the murders? Well, there's more. A lot more. Skipping ahead to April 7th, 1938. 
Horace Davis was taken from jail into downtown Washington to give his statement again. The title of the page reads, State of Maryland versus Walter Oliver et al. Murder of Lawrence Emery Smith and James Mitchell, U.S. District Attorney's Office, Washington, D.C. Statement of Horace E. Davis, 31 years old. They were going after Walter Oliver et al., meaning and others, for the Carbarn murders, and they wanted to hear Davis's story one more time. During the 1938 interview, Horace Davis added a few more details to his initial story, and he was up for conditional release the following week on April 14th. He gave the same details about being at the corner of 10th and E Streets when Walter Oliver pulled over and offered him a ride. Oliver asked Horace Davis how he'd been getting along on the outside. Davis said he was making out the best he could. He was on parole from Lorton Reformatory and he was trying to keep his nose clean. Horace Davis said that he could smell liquor on Oliver's breath and that he'd been drinking pretty heavily. Davis hopped in the car and they rode out to First and Rhode Island. And on the way, Davis asked Walter Oliver what he'd been up to. Oliver replied, well, you can see what I've got here with me. I'm just trying to put a little bread on the table and make ends meet. I haven't pulled anything since we pulled the car barn job. Davis replied, You mean to tell me that you pulled that job? Oliver then said, Hell yes. Davis asked who was with him that night in Chevy Chase, and Walter Oliver said, A couple of fellows. Davis didn't press him on the issue of who else was involved, but he did ask Oliver how much money they got out of it. Oliver told him either 1800 or 2800 He couldn't recall the exact number, but he did tell the U.S. District Attorney that Walter Oliver was more likely to inflate the number anyway. And just to refresh your memory, close to $1,300 was stolen from the ticket office, so that figure from Oliver was inflated. But the amount had also been misreported numerous times in the newspapers. Davis asked Walter Oliver about my great-uncle Emery Smith, who he called the man in the creek, and asked Oliver why they killed him. Walter Oliver replied, he recognized one of us. We had already killed one, and we might as well have killed a hundred. I've been laying low. Things have been too damn hot. Walter Oliver also said that they didn't go back through Chevy Chase, but took Connecticut Avenue northbound through Kensington, which was the direction of the bridge over Rock Creek. Horace Davis ended his 1938 affidavit by swearing that what he said was the absolute truth, and he would appear as a witness for the prosecution voluntarily whenever he was needed. Going back to Volton's interview with Davis in January of 1936, he didn't take Horace Davis's story at face value. Volton asked Davis why Walter Oliver would feel comfortable enough to confess a murder to him and Davis said that he would have to admit to another crime to prove his point, and he gave Volton all of the details. Horace Davis described another robbery that he committed in 1933 with Walter Oliver. He said that Oliver had been in the bootlegging racket and knew a man up in rural Maryland that kept a wallet filled with cash in his back pocket. The man was an easy mark, and Walter Oliver asked Horace Davis to drive the car while Oliver robbed the man at gunpoint. Davis told Oliver he was crazy 
the man would recognize him and squawk to the cops. Walter Oliver said that wouldn't be an issue because he'd just kill him. Horace Davis told Oliver that now he knew he was nuts and that Oliver could drive and Davis would rob the man without having to bump him off. Horace Davis said they drove to the house up in Seat Pleasant, Maryland, and he robbed the man of 27 bucks. There was no shooting. Detective Volton thought that the cheese had slid off of Horace Davis's pizza crust to admit to another robbery that had never been reported, so he followed up on his story. Volton went to Seat Pleasant and found Will Godfrey, the bootlegger that Davis and Oliver had robbed three years prior. When Volton confronted Godfrey about it, Godfrey was stunned and said, Who told you that? I've never mentioned it to anyone. Volton had hit pay dirt. If Davis was telling the truth about an unreported robbery that he had committed, he must be telling the truth about what Walter Oliver confessed about the Carbarn case. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. 
So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Horace Davis added that Oliver owned a red LaSalle touring car and a peerless coupe, two really expensive luxury cars along the lines of a Mercedes or a BMW today. He also said that Oliver ran a bootlegging place at 127 E Street Northwest. He and Oliver didn't want to take that flaming red LaSalle on Will Godfrey's robbery since it was easily spotted, so they borrowed a Ford Coupe from a woman who lived next door. After the robbery, they went to 127 E Street into a back room to split up the money. 13 bucks a piece for Oliver and Davis, and they gave the extra dollar to the woman for the use of her car. Detective Volton needed to find out everything he could about Walter Oliver. So he went to the DC Vice Squad along with Sergeant Leroy Rogers, and they found an officer who had known Oliver since they were kids. The officer said that Walter Oliver would do anything, including murder, and he'd heard that Walter Oliver carried a 32 caliber gun. Horace Davis said that the gun that Oliver gave him during Will Godfrey's robbery was a 32 caliber semi-automatic. That's the same caliber gun used in the Carbarn case. Continuing to follow leads on Walter Oliver, they went to the Identification Bureau and found out the woman's name who had lent them the Ford Coupe. Her name was Mildred Oliver, and she was married to Walter Oliver's cousin, Douglas. They all ran that speakeasy together. Now the detectives knew where to find Walter Oliver, but they had to get more information on him before they confronted him about the murders. The detectives went to the Commissioner of Motor Vehicles to check the registrations of any cars under Walter Oliver's name, especially that Red LaSalle and Peerless Coupe that Horace Davis mentioned. There was no listing for either of those cars, but they did find a registration for a 1935 Hup Coupe. Horace Davis said that Walter Oliver picked him up in a Hup Coupe that day at 10th and E Street. With that information, they went to the house listed to Walter Oliver's wife, posing as agents from the Motor Vehicle Commission, and told her that there'd been a mix-up on the license plate numbers, and they needed to check all of the cars in the yard to make sure things were correct. They found seven cars in Oliver's yard. Two of them were registered to Walter Oliver's father. Another belonged to Oliver's wife. The Red LaSalle, the Peerless, and a Whippet sedan had no registration, and a Hup Coupe was the only one in Walter Oliver's name. But the tag on it was stolen and belonged on a Ford Coupe that was registered to a known criminal who traded in hot cars and stolen parts. Why would Walter Oliver have seven cars? And why was there a stolen plate on the only one in his name? Walter Oliver and his wife had only been married since January 2, 1936, and they were now living in Capitol Heights, Maryland. Walter Oliver was looking really good for the car barn case, and they dug a little further into his past. Walter Oliver was friends with two men who had been found guilty of bootlegging and counterfeiting, and they'd been released on parole in November of 1934, just two months before the murders. Bootlegging, counterfeiting, stolen cars, bogus tags, multiple vehicles, a speakeasy, robbery convictions. It seemed like Walter Oliver had quite a few connections to various DC rackets. 
Horace Davis wrote down all of the information he knew in a sworn affidavit with the promise to testify against Walter Oliver if charges were proffered against him. That was on January 20th, 1936. On January 25th, there was a story in the Washington Post. It was reported that 2,000 people stood in the street as seven fire companies battled a huge blaze at the former Capitol Heights town meeting hall. The new owners came home at 2 o'clock in the morning to find their second-floor apartment completely engulfed in flames. Two firemen were seriously hurt as they battled the fire for hours. The interior of the two-story frame building that used to be a movie theater was a complete loss, as was the brand-new electrical shop on the first floor. That electrical shop was owned by Walter Oliver. Oliver and his wife said that they'd been at dinner and came home to find their brand-new apartment and his electrical shop in flames. This happened just five days after Horace Davis gave his information to Volton. It seemed like Walter Oliver might have torched his own place, but for what purpose? The fire marshal concluded that a portable heater had tumbled against the bed and set the sheets on fire. And sadly, the Oliver's dog, Mickey, was found dead on the second floor. Did Mickey knock the heater over, or was there something more nefarious going on? Detective Volton found out that Oliver had opened up that electrical shop shortly after the Chevy Chase murders and robbery, and surmised that if the 32 caliber handgun was inside, it was gone, along with everything else the Olivers owned. Detective Volton had gotten the information about Oliver's electrical shop from the Capitol Heights town officer, who was unimpressed by Volton and didn't care to share much information about Walter Oliver at all, other than the location of the shop and that the Olivers had just gotten married. A couple of days after they talked to that town officer, the building burned to the ground. Was that town officer receiving payoffs from Walter Oliver's bootlegging gig? Was that why he was so superficial with his information to Volton? It's possible that the town officer tipped Walter Oliver off that he'd had a visit from detectives about the Carborn case. To me, that fire is way too coincidental to be an accident, but there's just no way to prove it. So, what happened after the U.S. District Attorney got Horace Davis's sworn affidavit in 1938 on what appeared to be the state's pending case against Walter Oliver for the Carborn murders? Absolutely nothing. The detectives spent weeks, both in 1936 and again in 1938, building a case against Walter Oliver for the murders. But there's no interview with him in the case file. No follow-up to that U.S. District Attorney's meeting with Horace Davis. No further information on Walter Oliver at all. It just evaporated. And he was never arrested or indicted on the charges. Why do all of that legwork only to let it go? Was it because they had no other evidence against Oliver other than the statement of a known felon? What happened with all of the vehicles in his yard? The speakeasy at 127 E Street? Did Walter Oliver go on the run after his shop burned down? Did they look for that 32 caliber gun in the rubble? Did they try to question Oliver's wife at any point? Did the detectives ever confront Oliver with Horace Davis's statement about his confession to being involved? Anything? No, they didn't. Something about this case file isn't right. 
Volton, Brass, Deal, Rogers, McAuliffe, and all of the other detectives seemed like they were chasing their tails. And every time they got a good lead on a potential suspect, it just faded away with no explanation. They stopped looking for the missing green Buick that was stolen the night before the murders. They let George Bruffy and Lawrence Pettit off the hook after they went to jail for planning the robbery of the main office at 36th and M Street, even after Bruffy told Pettit he talked too much when the car barn case was brought up by the informant. What about getting a statement directly from K.W. Gettings about him seeing William Clark outside of the 14th and East Capitol Street ticket office on the morning of the murders? There was no follow-up at all on Walter Oliver, despite Horace Davis's sworn affidavit, an interview at the U.S. District Attorney's Office, and the mysterious fire at Oliver's electrical shop just days after they went to Capitol Heights to ask about him. Arthur Waugh was released without getting to the bottom of exactly where he was on the night of the murders. Harry Simon had ties to the underworld, and although his alibi had checked out, what else did he know? And what the hell happened to Francis Gregory, the man who supposedly slept through four gunshots in the next room at the Chevy Chase ticket office? What else did he know? And why wasn't he pressed harder for information? Why were all of these men let go without any further investigation into their alibis or to gather more information about what they really knew about the Carbarn case? What made this case so damn difficult to solve back then? And why was it shelved for decades? Was it really an inside job like everyone thought, or was there more to it? The further I dug, the more questions I had, and none of it made any sense. For months on end, I tried to put the pieces together, and I kept coming up empty. I was becoming obsessed with this case, just hell-bent on figuring out who killed these men and why. I was falling back into a familiar trap, just like I did years before when a case became too close. But this one is close. This is my family, my relative who didn't get justice. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I continued my research on the information provided by Horace Davis, and I finally started to make some headway. Horace Davis did give another name in his initial January 1936 statement. The man was a good friend of Walter Oliver's, who was currently serving eight years at the Maryland State Penitentiary. Oliver's friend's name was Robert Janney. I found out that he had a laundry list of arrests. Janney and his mother, Josephine Graham, had been arrested for trafficking heroin in July of 1930 in what was termed the biggest narcotics bust in the history of the East Coast. The heroin was being shipped to Washington via New York and New Jersey by two gangsters, and Robert Janney and his mother, Josephine, were the main distributors in the district. Robert Janney had ties to both New York and New Jersey in the drug racket. When they were arrested, Robert Janney fought three federal agents who wrestled him to the ground and they found heroin in his pocket. His mother Josephine was arrested as well, and Janney tried to get her off the hook by insisting that the drugs found in her purse were his, but the investigators didn't buy it. They were both taken to the D.C. jail, That was in July of 1930. The charges were either dropped or they both received very short sentences because just two years later, on July 5, 1932, Robert Janney was arrested for DUI and reckless driving. On July 6, the next day, he managed to bend the bars of a window at the Prince George's County Jail and escaped. A few hours later, he was found at his house and taken back with the added charge of escape. His mother, Josephine, died in 1933. Janney was released from that jail sentence, and in October of 1935, he was arrested again, this time for breaking his wife's nose during a domestic. While he was serving three months in jail for that, an investigation into an armed robbery and assault that happened the week prior to the domestic netted Janney eight years. The victim of the robbery, a man named Samuel Weiss, was on the steps of his house at around 11 o'clock at night. Two men snuck up on him 
and he felt the muzzle of a revolver against his head. The two men took $300 from Samuel Weiss's wallet and ran down an alley. One suspect, Ernest Tyler, was arrested first because he was employed by Samuel Weiss and was identified by the victim. Ernest Tyler eventually came off the name of his accomplice, Robert Janney. The police got a signed statement from Janney, which said that Ernest Tyler planned the holdup and purchased the gun that Robert Janney used while Tyler took the money. Janney was charged as the gunman. That is quite a rap sheet. Continuing their investigation into the statements of Horace Davis about Walter Oliver's friendship with Robert Janney, Detective Volton went to Baltimore to talk with Robert Janney's wife, Lillian. She was 24 years old and living on Stafford Street with their daughter, Josephine, no doubt named after Robert's mother. Lillian was still pretty pissed off at her husband for breaking her nose, and she was more than willing to talk with the detectives about what she knew. Lillian said that Robert Janney had been employed at the Baltimore Salesbrook Company as a watchman, and he never worked on Sunday nights or Mondays during the day. Recall that the murders happened early Monday morning, January 21st. When the detectives asked Lillian if she could remember anything unusual about her husband back in January of 1935, she said that one morning did stand out in her mind. Robert Janney came home early one morning, and his pants were wet all the way up to the knees. She said he sat around all day staring at the walls, acting very nervous. That afternoon, an insurance salesman knocked on the door and Janney about jumped out of his chair. Detective Volton asked her if she could remember any of the names of the men that Janney ran around with, either in Baltimore or in DC, and he showed Lillian an array of photographs on the coffee table. Lillian looked the photos over carefully and she picked one up. She said, isn't this a Baltimore man? I've seen him with my husband at Baltimore and Gay Streets. He introduced us, and I think he said his name is Clarklin or Franklin. It was William Franklin Clark. If you have information about the Car Barn murders, go to the Shattered Souls Facebook page and leave a message. Opening music by Sam Johnson at samjohnsonlive.com. Underscore music by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders is produced by Karen Smith and Angel Heart Productions. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career and here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 